0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Glenn? Glenn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, I'll speak to you later. Yeah, I, I love you. Okay, bye, bye, bye. Oh, 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 hello everyone. Hi, yes, hi. Just finishing off a phone call uh, with a dear friend of mine. This is Joel McIver, and uh, this, the thing that you're about to hear, is a uh, wonderful compilation of our best parts over the 23 episodes of Dead Rock Stars that we recorded for our first season. Amply and well put together by our dear friend Ian Callahan. our producer, a very strange man, but uh, looks nice. We hope this will be entertaining, so hang in there and we'll catch up with you soon. You talked about
2: faxes. Yes. Quick story that always makes me laugh, mm. and I think it kind of shows the sensitive side of Lemmy, and also the bastard, if you like. Yeah, but also funny. Mm. So anyway, I I can't remember getting into this, but we're talking about poetry, mm. and he starts telling me how you know he apart from lyrics, he writes reams of poetry. Mm. Mm. And at the time, I actually was having some of my poetry published. I don't know why I'm laughing. I didn't know you wrote poetry. I'm
1: a great poet. Does it rhyme? No. Oh, fuck for off. Christ's sake. That's Nick. not poetry. It's not real, then is it? No. <laughs> no, anyway. Next time uh, you have to read some of your poetry on this. Yeah, I think
2: Ian might step in. I think I could read it all day, but whether it'd make the actual broadcast, uh, that's debatable. Well, it should. Yeah, I can see you looking at him and him going like this. You must be fucking joking. Yeah, that's it. Shut, Shut him up. Anyway, so we're talking to Lemmy about poetry. And he says, I really write a lot of poetry. I said, wow, I'd love to see some, because I was mm. writing a lot myself at the time. Mm. Next thing, because he's in LA, he's mm. eight hours behind. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm in bed at about 2 a.m. one night, and I could hear...
1: Like, yeah like the um football results yeah thing. yeah, yeah. yeah. And,
2: <laughs> and it went on and on because the bastard's sending me dozens of pages yeah, as you right. said
1: reams of it right yeah. and
2: I, I had this old-fashioned fax machine where it wasn't like this clean a4 paper that you get now in fact we yeah. do have mac fax machines now but no. it was that greasy stuff that was all on one roll i know it yeah anyway <clears> about <throat> 10 foot of this comes through and i'm looking at it in the morning over a cup of tea and you know bleary and mm. And I, I couldn't read it all because A there was too much of it. And B it was it was handwritten. Yeah. But it was in this very kind of stylized gothic hand. Really? That's how I remember it. Yeah. Are you sure he went under the influence of something Mick? Well, it's possible. No, no. And this thing was I just remember it was like um uh, this isn't a direct quote, obviously, because no. a long time ago. But it was From the hills came the hellclaw of <laughs> Satan. <laughs> you could and it was like <laughs> the blood flowed quickly over the
1: virgin's toes. And was yes. he entirely serious? I or was he taking the piss? Well, Come here's up. the thing.
2: Yeah. I think he was serious. Because oh. you could write a page or two of that, Taking the Piss. But there were about six different poems, all long poems. And I just imagine him speeding all night. Yeah, yeah. He's been yeah. up for five nights. And now he's getting to the good stuff with his poetry, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Hegemon came from the thundercloud.
1: And was know. it... Sort of embarrassing Jim Morrison style poetry. Or was there some value to it, as you recall? Well, um, as a poet yourself, Mick. Well, as a, speaking as
2: a contemporary poet <laughs> and a contemporary of such poets as Lemmy. <laughs> uh, Never mind Philip. Bruce laughing. Dickinson. Bruce Dickinson. Know, of enormously course. fantastic literary figures of our time. Literary giants. Giants. Yes, much better than Jim Morrison. Yeah. You know, Jim Morrison's that Morrison is all like... Uh, it's not setting the bar very high. The ghost it. of the dead Indian came down the highway, the child with his frog in his head.
1: Doesn't Jim Morrison at one point say death and my cock? Yeah, are, are all death live- of my cock. Death of my
2: cock. Yeah, I think that was the best line he ever wrote, actually, speaking as an older man. We'll have to talk to.
1: about Jim Morrison, won't we, on this uh, well,
2: Definitely, but back to Lemmy. Yeah. So I'm reading this, and I'm actually very taken aback that he's taken the time to feed these endless pages into a fax machine. Yeah, yeah. Handwritten. So I thought, wow, do you know what? I'll send him some of mine. So so I printed out three or four poems, and I faxed him back. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And guess what?
1: I don't know. What?
2: Fuck all happened. Nothing. (laughs) He was this much interested. Maybe he was speechless because it was so good. Maybe he just didn't give a fuck about anything I had to say or write or anything. On that first trip to Paris, Ronnie said to me out the blue one afternoon, he said, listen, I've been working on something. I want to show you. And he held up what we now consider to be the devil horn salute with both hands.
1: Mick is holding them up as we speak. I'm holding them up as we speak. For those watching this in black
2: and white. Why he came up with that... He explained to me, he said, because when Aussie used to come out on stage, oh. he used to flash a peace sign. Yeah. He put up two hands. In fact, you can find zillions of pictures of Aussie in Sabbath in yeah. the 70s. A bit like Nixon on the White House lawn, You're know, yeah. holding
1: up the two... Or Like Ringo Starr all the time.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Except with two hands.
1: Right. Got it. Yeah, This goes to two hands. The full Aussie. See, not... Ringo's only <laughs> one hand job. <laughs> uh, you know, this is two hands. What you're saying is this is a double hand job. This is a double hand
2: job of peace. <laughs> And love. So, Ronnie says to me, what do you think? It's kind of like, you know... Oh, he ran the... it
1: past you? Like, you yes. Know, should I do this? Because so I'm
2: the I mean? PR, right? Should I have pictures done like this? Should I do it on stage? God. and It was in, that contrived. In fairness, he could have gone like that. Double, doing... He's doing rude rude fingers I'm me. doing... Yeah, yeah. Is that index finger? Um, no, um, middle finger. Middle that's finger that's a... yeah. I'm doing two middle <clears> fingers now. <clears throat> that's <clears throat> two middle fingers. He could have done that, and I'd have said, yeah, whatever. You <clears throat> <know. clears throat> but he did this,
1: and I thought, "Oh, that's... Intriguing. If you'd said, no, that's a crap idea, Ronnie, do you think he wouldn't have done it?
2: He wouldn't have listened
1: to a word I uh, said. because what I was angling for was you saying, yes, he would have said no, therefore establishing you, Mick, as the guy who basically authorised and pioneered the horns in metal. Let's
2: rewind that. Yeah. If I'd said to Ronnie... Yeah absolutely no way he'd have gone, Mick,
1: you're the expert. Thank God for letting me know. You're the expert. You've just saved my career. I could have looked ridiculous when I went on stage. (laughs) Well, this is the truth. Listeners, you hear about it here for the very first time. Mick Waller is the man who authorised Ronnie James Dio's pioneering use of the Corna, as I believed it's uh, known in old Italian, the dual horns. Uh, which I believe come from some sort of uh, warding off evil thing from ancient witchcraft. But here's the thing. He didn't mention
2: any of that to me at the time. And being of Italian descent, I mean, it may well have been in his thinking, but at that moment, and we spent a good half an hour... He he, he walked around the hotel room. Again, I'm doing the devil horn thing with both hands. Uh, He do that really well, Mick. He walked around the room showing me what he would do. And uh, he obviously clearly figured it all out. And I just thought, yeah, that's genius. It's like... I'm in the tradition, but I am my own man. Yeah. He didn't mention anything about warding off the devil, or I certainly didn't call it the devil horn salute. Bill,
1: Bill warding off the devil. Yeah. He just said, this is my version of Ozzy's peace science. That's amazing. Yeah. And so history was established. And so it was established. Oh, my God. Is there not a seminal moment when uh, Freddie met Sid Vicious, right? In, uh... <laughs> there is. There just is. Tell us what happened. Well, the backdrop to this was a, a piece that NME did.
2: Tony Stewart wrote the piece. And Tony Stewart, God bless him, you know, is is not known as a laugh a minute, yeah. you know. Not like you, Mick. Unlike Mick. myself, who brings joy to every situation. And he interviewed Freddie in, like, the summer of 76, 77? Yeah. 77, maybe. And the headline was, Is This Man a Pratt? <laughs> And, you know, it's the NME and it's heyday yeah. when it was actually worth reading. Yeah. But he'd gone in with the hatchet fully sharpened and he'd actually got Freddie to the point where he was talking about wanting to bring through Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. So I'm sure if more pop kids listen to opera, they'd open up to it. Yeah. Cut to a couple of months later because they're in the studio. And um, Sid Vicious. Maybe we'll do one on Sid one day. But we I met to. Sid we a few to. times. Yep. He was hilarious. Yeah. And he would quite often talk to you like that. <laughs> I remember stepping over him once, going into the Speakeasy. <laughs> I stepped over Sid Vicious. You come down the stairs into the basement. And I stepped over Sid, and he's lying next to Nancy Sponge, and he goes, "I, I sell, boy. Could you buy me a drink?" <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck off, Sid. <laughs> you bastard. You bastard, Sid. So anyway, Sid bursts in and he goes, Oi, Freddie, I hear you're bringing opera to the masses. <laughs> and Freddie's at the piano, you know, composing. You can imagine, like, we are the champions of something, you know, dun-dun-dun-dun, my life with you when I look back, you know. Sid comes in and he goes, Oi, Fred, I hear you're bringing opera to the masses. And Freddie looks up from the piano and goes, Ah, oh, Mr. Ferocious.
1: Come sit with me at the keyboard. <laughs> and sits like, I'll fall off it. <laughs> they were almost like polar opposites, were they not, of pop music.
0: Dead rock stars. Because dead men can't sue.
1: Can I tell you about the time I met him?
2: You may. 1980. Oh, Christ. Yeah. This is about four months before he died. Mm. And I'm the PR for Black Sabbath. It was their first UK tour with Ronnie James Dio as the vocalist. Mm. And they were doing five nights at what was then the Hammersmith Odeon in London. Yeah. And Jason and I have spoken about this since. Jason was a big Sabbath fan. Mm -hmm. You know, he he loved Zeppelin. He would have been, what, 14 then? Yeah. Sabbath fan. Rainbow fan. Mm. Couldn't wait to see Dio in Sabbath. Mm. So we got a call from their office saying tickets, passes. And I sorted it out. And I think I told you in the past, Bill Ward, you know, used to drive me nuts on that tour (laughs) because every night after the show, I'd be dragged into the dressing room and Bill would be sitting there in a blubber of sweat Mm. and paranoia Mm. and drug-fueled... Weirdness. Yeah, 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 And he'd be like, fucking hell, Mick. I want you to write this down and mm. send it out on the fucking wire. And we'd be in Sheffield and I'd be thinking, what wire? Mm. You know, there's no wire, Bill. We're not in a M- Milwaukee, you know. that? Mm. Write this down. And i go, okay. And he go, I oh, broke me drumstick in children. You and I'd write all his bollocks down. And as I got to the dressing room door, Paul Clark, the tour manager, would go... Uh, you got something for me, Mick? And I'd give him the paper and he'd roll it up into a ball and throw it in the bin. We used to call the bin the wire. Put, <laughs> put that on the wire, you know. So, anyway, I'm in the middle of this fucking Bill Ward nightmare and I'm backstage at the Hammersmith audience, like the third night of five or something. And I'm, yeah. I'm always in there on my own because no one can stand to be with him when he's like this. I'm in there on my own. Oh, someone in the middle of Iron man. You know, so it's like, all right, all right. So I'm writing it down. Suddenly the door, literally the door bursts open. Bang! In comes Bonzo. The man himself, In yeah. comes the man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Bill's like, hello, Bonzo. All right, my Bonzo. I love you, Bonzo. What did you think of the show? And Bottom goes up to the drinks table and he's looking. He's looking. He goes, where's the fucking whiskey? And Bonzo goes, well, let me look at the back. So Bonzo grabs this bottle, goes, takes the top off. Goes, literally, gunk, gunk gonk, gunk, yeah. gunk, 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 gonk. Slams the bottle down. Yeah. And Bill goes, see what did you think, Bonzo? Bonzo goes, you a fucking shite. And Bill goes, You're right, Bonzo, you're so right. I was just telling Mick we were fucking shy, it wasn't I, was Mick? And I'm like, <laughs> No. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Who's this fucking madman? Because I hadn't connected the dots yet. And then I went, oh, It's John Bonham. It's, fucking John Bonham. it's John Bonham. It's John Bonham. Yeah. Isn't that time? We must be going. You know? But it was quite funny. I Did mean, you exchange a few words with him? No, you must be joking! I, I mm, melted mm. into the background because you know to have someone turn around at Bill Woods I mean, this is two minutes after they'd come off stage. Yeah, you go, yeah. You were fucking shite. You know, it was like, hmm, not entirely how I'd have put it. Uh, you yeah. know, it was very. It's not endearing behaviour. Oh, I loved him for but it. A, I look it's back pretty now. Straight, I, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. the amount of times. Straight I've, shooting. I would love to do that. Wouldn't you love to do that? You know, I, I heard you went to see Cannibal Corpse recently. I did. Wouldn't you love did to? Did that news come
1: out on the wire? Is <laughs> that how you know?
2: It was on the fucking wire. Wouldn't you have loved to have gone into the dressing room after, smashed open the door, and gone, where's the fucking whiskey? And I go, hello, Joel. All right, mate. It's over there. And they go, what do you think Are they American? They are. They- okay, so, hey, Joel. Yeah. What, do show, what do you think of the show, buddy? What do you think of the show, buddy? I love you, buddy. We've known each other a long time, buddy.
1: <laughs> I love it when you go to our show.
2: You've been a long time supporter and friend and goodwill. What do you think of the show?
1: It was fucking shite! <laughs>
2: Yeah, you know what, Joe, you're right. Uh, you're, me and the guys, we were, we're just say, going to talk about it. Yeah, we were going to talk about it.
1: <laughs> guys, I
2: think, I think Joe makes a valid
1: point. Uh, yeah. I take your point. I'm far too quiet and introverted for that to ever happen, but I take your point. But here is a great Bowie story that Bowie
2: told me that day after we'd finished filming.
1: By He's... the way, did he remember that you had met four years before? No. Bless his okay, no. No. Yeah. Nah, he, nah,
2: Not a clue, you know. And I wasn't about to remind him. Mm. So we finished the filming... And we're leaving the hotel. I didn't realise he was standing next to me. I thought it was Gail, the producer. And I literally <laughs> turned to him and I went, that, "That was all right, wasn't it?" And he went, "Yeah, I thought it went really well." <laughs> uh, just as well you didn't uh, say who was. Yeah, twat? thank God that. Uh, fuck that guy, you know. But, <laughs> so we're walking and we're just chatting, and he says, um, "I don't know how it began, but he, he tells me this story." He Says. Um, I wish I could remember what I said to prompt him to tell this story. But anyway, he said, you know, Joey and I were at home one night in Geneva or wherever they lived. He said, and uh, the film of Ziggy Stardust. Kenny Baker made a famous film from the the 73 farewell show. But it didn't go on general release for over 10 years. And uh, he said, we were at home one night, obviously pre-Google. They're looking at the local paper. He said, we noticed it was on in town. And we had nothing to do. It was like a boring Wednesday night. And we both said, shall we go? He said Joey was like 16 at the time or something like that. And um, so David said, yeah, let's go, let's go. So Joey goes, I've got to go and get ready first. So Bo's like, well, hurry up because, you know, it starts at eight or whatever it is. So Joey runs up the stairs. He's gone for ages and half an hour, 45 minutes. And David's going, Joey, come on, we've got to go. Finally, Joey comes down the stairs, he's been in his dad's old wardrobe, he's dug out all the Ziggy clothes, he's put on makeup and styled his hair, and he's coming down the stairs in the full Ziggy outfit. (laughs) Regalia. Regalia. Bloody hell. And David goes, the first words out of my mouth were, you're not going out looking like that. (laughs) Ah, brilliant. (laughs) That's amazing. He goes... This reminded me of the exploited meeting. He goes, and at that point, my head went, "Oh no! How can you? Oh yes! Oh no! Oh god!" It was like one side of my brain. I thought, "Oh fuck, here we go again." Yeah. And but the other side of my brain, you know,
1: this so, is why we <laughs> do this podcast, Mick. <laughs> Stories like that you <laughs> are just gold. You cannot get them anywhere. Maximum round of applause for you for that. And Linnet said to me, eh, "Mick,
2: you're into would mark." That's a terrible. Well, he, he was he, not he, from Yorkshire. Ian, Ian, cut that. <laughs> Are you into Fleetwood Mac? I can't. Fuck me. I'm Irish. And I can't, okay, I'm not going to do No, I think it was more like, are you into Fleetwood Mac? Well, that there kind of go. like aggressive you, well, Southern no, thing. No, he was more of a smoothie. He was, are you into Fleetwood Mac?
1: <laughs> I was like, Phil, No, no I? you sound like Sean Connery, mate. Are you into Fleetwood fuck Mac? Money, Sean Connery. Are you into Fleetwood Mac? <laughs> Is any of this going to make it in? <laughs> yes, if it does. Thank you so much do. for listening to it us. It do to. appreciate It, it, it better gets better. It
2: gets better. No, Ian, leave all this in for crying out loud. leave all this in. Now, that's a northern Irish accent. Phil famously was from Dublin. He was from Dublin. Crumlin in Dublin. He was And crumlin. he said, Mick, you t- <laughs> Do are
1: not,
2: you not f- edit this out. I like. interf- Will you shut up talking to me? <laughs> I interfleet. Oh, fuck's sake. He said, are you interfleet with Mac? And I I was about 20 years old at the time. And I went, well, I really like the early with pink and green. I love the change." And he went, ha, 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 come here. And he pulled out a white packet. Bloody hell. And he unfolded it, and with a plectrum, he dug out a big load of powder. A goodly portion. Goodly portion. and went to shove it under my nose, and I was no stranger to such activities back no. then. However, there was something odd about this particular powder, and I said, oh, what is it? And he went, Fleetwood Mac. God. Smack. And I went, oh, oh no no, no, go, go, no,
1: no, Mrs. No, 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 no. no. Yeah.
2: And then he went, I don't offer this to just anybody. Christ. So I did it. Did you? I did, yeah. Did you realise that's both illegal and dangerous? It was back <laughs> then, and it still is now, and do not do this at home. Kids. Kids. We're on the road, on the Monsters of Rock tour in America in 89, and, you know, Kirk's kind of a hippie, and yeah. a, so am I. So for
1: dude,
2: yeah, yeah. This is the 80s, you know, we're all vegetarian and new agey, and me and Kirk are coming down in the lift uh, to the bar to go out and kick ass and um, we're talking about essential oils (laughs) and and literally I'm explaining to him how lavender was called a medicine chest in a bottle Yeah, if you've got a headache you just rub some on your temples or perhaps your
1: wrist And and he was well into this
2: oh we're well into this but at this point lift stops at a certain floor, the door's uh-huh. open, and in comes James
1: Hetfield.
2: And I'm like, you know what also is really nice, Kirk, is neroli. Have you tried neroli? Oh, I love the fragrance of neroli. And Kirk's going, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I mean, oh, I just no. shut up, just shut up. And I'm thinking, no, neroli, you know. And James Hetfield is looking. He's what like, the hell, buddy? I realised I was being inappropriate. That's brilliant, though. Dead rock stars lobbing light grenades into the gloom. Rick's best friends in inverted commas, in the late 70s were George Best and Alex Hurricane Higgins. Bloody hell. So this is what we're talking about. Page three girls, cocaine, That's champagne. A owl, isn't it? Fucking hell. Well, Rick believed in big nights out. I mean, I'm jumping around as usual here. But in uh, 97, when he had his first heart attack. Yeah. His first of three. It led to him having a quadruple bypass. And while he was in the private ward of the hospital, he and Francis told me it was like a carry-on movie because (laughs) Rick would be in there with his girlfriend. Yeah. And then they'd have to sneak the girlfriend out a side door because his wife was about to arrive.
1: Bloody hell. So
2: then he'd have his wife in there. He's had the quadruple bypass. He's lying in bed with all the wires coming out of it. Then she would be ushered out and he would take the whole caboodle. He'd get out of bed, you know, the whole yeah, the contraption. the um, drip thing and walk around with it. Drag it to the gents, smoke some cigarettes, come back. He was supposed to be in there for two months. He checked himself out after three weeks because he was bored. And he told me that very night, because he's talked like that, you know, he said, her, oh, yeah. I, I hadn't had a big night in ages. So I thought, you know, I'm due a big night. So he got a roadie to carry him into his house lay him on the couch, then go out and buy him a quarter ounce of Coke, carton of 200 cigarettes, four bottles of champagne. I said, so what, did you have people over? He said, no, no, just me and the bird, you know, just (laughs) having a big night. This is right after surgery. This is three weeks after quadruple bypass, yeah. You have to admire it, don't you? He was back on stage a
1: month after that. You know, in some ways you have to admire this. If I had a quadruple pipe I wouldn't leave the sofa for fucking 20 years. I'd I milk the most out of it. we would been having seven grams
2: of cocaine, no. Angus never drank or took a drug in his life. Malcolm loved his booze and his smoke and his toot and all the rest of it, but mainly the booze, you know, and a man's man. And that was all good. But I think once you get to your late 20s, early 30s, I I know in my life there was a moment where I just didn't want to hang out with 22-year-old headbangers anymore. yeah, yeah. I actually did read books. I actually did know the difference between a Bordeaux and... uh, A Merlot. I was going to say a Liebfrahmilch. Okay, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. (laughs) So not only did he not hang out with them, not only did he live in a separate place to them because they would share houses in London, on the road, he quite often travelled with the support band. So, who were they opening for? Probably Aerosmith or someone like that in the in the seventy yeah. eight or something. Yeah, yeah. Dave menaketti from Y&T—they were like the opening band on the bill. And he told me he had a great memory of they'd just finished their set, this huge outdoor enormo dome in the summer in America, you know. Yeah. And next one were ACDC for forty-five minutes, and then it would be Aerosmith or whoever for you know an hour and a half. And they were panicking because no Bon. Where's Bon? <laughs> when did you last see him? I don't know, last night. You know, what was he doing? And literally with five minutes to go before on stage. And they're, that's some desert place in Arizona or something. They see this cloud of dust coming at speed towards the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> and it's literally two trucks, open back trucks, Mexicans... And it's all, woe, を, oy, la, this and here's Bon on the back of the truck with a bottle in each hand, yes. no shirt, and they're going, Bon, <clears throat> where have you been? Where have yeah. you gone? Oh, come on, mate, let fucking dig the show. Straight on. Straight on. Didn't do his vocal warm-ups. Oh, 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 d- no, his vocal warm-ups no, sort of gargle Jack Daniels. and Bloody uh, hell, man. I mean, Ian Jeffrey, the tour manager, wonderful guy who, him and Bon used to share a room. Yeah. And he said, I don't know why they put beds in our room, because we didn't sleep for about three years. <laughs> he just said, can you imagine sharing a room with Bond, Scott in ACDC?
1: Sorry, Mick. So uh, we quite often in these podcasts jump to the sort of the sad years, without spending the time I would like to spend on the big, happy, good mental times. Was his thing booze or coke or both? Everything. So was he taking smack at this point?
2: Everything. Bloody when hell. he was in fraternity... Similar to ACDC, if you know the ACDC story, they came to London. Yeah. They were big in Australia. In order to make it in the UK, they came and all lived, like Australians do, came and all lived in a big house in Olds Court. Yeah, of
1: course, yeah. yeah, yeah. Straight with Mike. That is fucked.
2: What's less well known is that just three years before, Bon had done exactly the same thing with fraternity. Mm. They lived in uh, Norwood or somewhere like that. And again, you know, typical squat, hippie house. But fraternity, from the name, you can tell they were hippie band. I mean, Bond would play flute. I mean, for goodness sake, you know. That's mad, isn't it? But his nickname in the group was Road Test Ronnie. Uh. Because any drug that came in the house, if they were a little bit iffy bond would take it yeah again you've got to remember no internet all right no so what you relied on with your dealers was whatever happened to come their way i mean th- in this country these days i i do not take drugs haven't done for many years but these days most of the weed in this country is made in this country it's done by people that have marijuana farms yeah. under hydroponic lights yeah. and they make incredibly strong weed Back in the late seventies, none of that went on. It was always imported. Afghan so, sort of stuff. Absolutely, you get some guy coming in going, oh, "I've got a nice bit of rocky Moroccan. I've got a nice bit of Afghani." <laughs> yeah, you know, obviously. And then was and then, he quite camp? Then he was this guy. Yeah, he. It was just this one guy he used to service everybody <laughs> in London. He serviced
1: everyone. He, he did. Man, what the hell are you talking about?
2: Oh, I remember that one of my uh, that I read about once was called. Uh, <laughs> I've got some nice Nepalese temple ball. you're going to love it. You see it's black, and the white streaks that's opium and you, everybody go. Opium.
1: Oh man, that's so exotic. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. But at the same time, they'd come in with powders and pills and go, nah, this was made by a German scientist in 74, but it got stolen from his laboratory. So today, what I've got, and this is the stuff that Hendrix took when he made Electric Lady Lad. I mean, you have these conversations. The and people days. would go, wow, so. He- OK, but of course, and this sometimes resulted in death. I mean, Lemmy has great stories of bikers turning up with all kinds of chemical compounds that would actually <clears throat> kill you or make your hair fall out. this
1: story, didn't he, about how a friend of his died in his arms after taking a Drug that was laced with rat poison. Wow, if you recall that story, wow. it's either in my book or your book. Or was it else's Moroccan
2: book. rat poison or um, yeah, only the best?
1: Yeah, but yeah. the bloke literally died, said, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, and he did die. So well, it was all awful. People really. did die, yeah. you know, so uh, I mean, which uh, makes uh, Ronnie the road test road test Ronnie. a bit of a uh, so and
2: lunatic, but Australians lunatic in London, can you imagine? So lunatics from I'll all try over, it, mate, yeah, nah, right. now, yeah, crazy Phil was here, he's from that Scot in Ladbrook Grove. Yeah, you guys are lightweight. You won't like this. Give it give it a road test, Ronnie. Here, Ronnie, what do you reckon? Fuck <laughs> that. Give it to me, mate. Way! And if Ronnie was still alive the next day, they'd all get stuck they'd all in. They'll all pile it. in. This isn't a record you put on to go, "Oh, I love this. Uh this will cheer me up." You know, th- this is the difference between in terms of art. This is the difference between a Michelangelo yeah. where you just admire the Technique, you may the substance, but it's figurative, and mm. you can it's good on the eye, and you can follow it mm. to a Jackson Pollock, yeah. Okay. Where people go, well, what the fuck's that? Mm. Guys just throwing fucking paint,
1: yeah. No, I, I grasp. You're, this. you're yeah. right on
2: one level. The guy is throwing paint, yeah. <laughs> but actually, there's a method to his madness. But this is the dividing line between Lou Reed and, shall we say, Susie Quattro. Right. you know, similar period, yeah. This is the dividing line between Lou Reed and Mick Jagger. Let's put it like that. This is the dividing line between Lou Reed and David Bowie until David Bowie somewhat emulated with... that approach with low, oh, yeah, right. particularly side two. Yeah. If you've no, been that... listening to Stockhausen, <laughs> yeah, right. if you've That's been listening to Berlioz yeah, yeah, or, you know, trust me, what Lou Reed did didn't come out of nowhere. Mm, and okay. yes, of course, it's veiled in contempt. It's veiled in self-loathing. It's a high art joke in many ways. It's an insult in many ways. Nevertheless, (laughs) he did it. No one else did it. And we're still talking about it today. We're still debating it today. I love
1: talking about this album. I remember there's a a magazine called Terrorizer, which is an extreme metal thing. And uh, they once ran a poll saying, uh, which is the most extreme album ever recorded? People clearly wrote in and said, it's Slayer, it's Morbid Angel. Kill them all! And so on and so on. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. But actually... (laughs) They wrote themselves that they thought the metal machine music was the most extreme album ever made. Now, mm. that showed serious intelligence and, and a little bit of stepping outside the box. But I have a question for you. I can see you're about to talk, which is why I want to say it. We can defend or not defend the artistic merit of this album all day, and I love doing that. Would you defend its musical quality? Of course, yeah. You I like f- the sounds on the record. Forget the I artistic didn't say, I didn't say I like the sound. You said,
2: is there anything to defend about the musicality? Yeah, okay, yes, yeah. of
1: course. Do you like the sounds
2: that you hear when they come off the record? Liking sounds doesn't mean defending musicality. Uh, simple Are questions.
1: you saying... No, no, it's not... Do you me- like listening to the album? No. Does anyone? Probably Blue not. Reed used
2: to like listening to it.
1: So my point is only this, that this is where we find a brilliant, brilliant turning point or a sort of a catalyst for discussing something's musical merit as opposed to its artistic merit, which to me are completely different. I love the fact that he released it. Don't get me wrong. I love the fact that he recorded it, that they made it a double album just to take the piss even more... But I think it's bollocks at the same time. That's what fascinates See, me. See, I don't. About dis- it. I don't well, agree. What's your with you. Take? Yeah, no, I right. totally disagree.
2: Let's have it. I totally disagree. I think what you're talking about is a visceral, immediate reaction. But if you listen to great jazz music or great classical music or any of the great electronic composers, yeah. you listen to Philip Glass. You know, you listen to Steve Reich. Mm. You listen to On the Beach. You know, you listen to some of those... They don't even know what to call them because they're not classical, they're not jazz, they're avant-garde moments of silence. You know, is that musicality? Is that something to think about in the same way you think about art? Just because I don't like it, or I think it's bollocks, I think says more about the listener than it does about the piece of work. The fact is, it's a statement. And you can dismiss it. You can get angry with it. Mm. You can call it bollocks. Mm. Mm. But you can do that to all kinds of art. There are still people today that look at abstract art and go, well, that's bollocks. Yeah. Tracy
1: Ehrman's bed. Yeah, well, well no, I could have I done that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I couldn't. No, and believe me, I despise that knee-jerk reaction myself. The point I was only making was that I thought the music was crap, but that it was a wonderful artistic statement that I'm glad was made. The music
2: was crap.
1: Oh yeah. god, yeah.
2: No, yeah. I can't. No, I totally disagree. Uh, okay, I fundamentally disagree. You're imposing your own idea of what yes. good and bad yeah. is as a subjective listener. I feel I can, but how, wh- what are you comparing it to? So, um, what piece of electronic avant-garde art music would you say was better, and why? I wouldn't,
1: because so I know you're not how it really engaging
2: with what it is. You're saying I listened to
1: it. I thought it was bollocks. I took the time to listen to it all the way through. Once? Right? And decided yeah, yeah. it was bollocks. I decided that I wouldn't assign any merit to it musically, artistically is a different matter, musically because I know I could sit down there with a couple of pedals and a guitar and do it myself. Perhaps that's the wrong view, but that was my view.
2: Could you sit down and do the same to a Metallica record? Could I play the stuff on a, yeah. on a Metallica album? Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah, but it wouldn't sound like Metallica, would it? No, it wouldn't, but the Metallica give... plunge a lot of technicality and artistry into it, which I admire. Uh, that's a a lot. Lot. I think we're going uh, around in circles. I mean, i well, no, no. here's the thing: you said it's bollocks musically. Why don't we stick to that artistically? Musically, not artistically. Say it yes. again. Musically, I think it sounds terrible. Artistically, I think it's fantastic. Okay. that's my view. And when here's my view. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: Totally disagree. Go
1: on. I've already gone on. So, the, how many times have I got to go because on? Because I don't understand what you're saying. Are you saying? Well, you're that, never going to understand. Well, it? try it one more time. Try me one more time. Are you saying it musically? Actually, this is pretty good stuff.
2: Musically, I think it's a fantastic, unrepeatable statement. And if you look at the tradition it comes out of, mm. it fits extremely well. And at that time in the history of rock music, it was an extraordinary thing to do. That I don't disagree with at all. But when you say musically, it's bollocks, that's like saying, well, it's not catchy. You know, it's like saying, I can't hum it. It's like saying, well, there's there's no chorus. I mean, okay. what I'm saying to you is, yeah. you've made your statement, it's bollocks. Here's my statement, no, it isn't.
1: Yeah, okay. Okay? And this is what's wonderful about it, right? In this case, it's a fairly extreme example of, of what would pass for a double LP from a... You know what I mean? In, it's, it's, well, it's... It's an extreme statement. It is. I, I'm not
2: going to join you on any of this. Okay. It's an extreme statement if you happen to be listening to the Rolling Stones that day or you want something that is much more accessible yeah. and within your own All parameters right, yeah. of what rock music
1: Contextually, is. Contextually, okay.
0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host dead rock stars with mick wall and joel McIver.
2: everybody wanted to work with jimmy everybody yeah. wanted to get a contact high yeah right <laughs> um, put. and i think that uh when it comes to Hendrix, because we talk about beyond the sky and the yeah. other side of the rainbow and that, it's very hard to say anything without sounding trite and punning. Sure. But, you know, the sky was the limit.
1: It yeah. really was. <laughs> yeah.
2: And the whole thing about his death, we could do a whole podcast purely on the night he died. We could. But there are many, many conflicting stories... Some say it was drugs, mm-hmm. he, he got sick in his sleep. Others talk of evidence of him being pumped with red wine. If there was a coroner's report, what did it say? Well, we mention coroner's reports a lot, don't we? We do. You know I have a very low opinion of coroner's mm-hmm. reports. I don't know off the top of my head. Some will write in and let us know. But it was a typical misadventure. Aspiration
1: of his vomit is a kind of known thing. Asphyxation. Well, yeah. yeah. They talk about aspirating your own right. vomit and asphyxiating on it. But what led to that, I guess, is the question. right? Well, there are
2: people saying he was still alive when they got him into the hospital. There were people saying he was already dead. You know, Monica Daneman, who was his girlfriend, and then eventually spent the rest of her life with Uli John Roth, yeah. was convinced... That you know it was a conspiracy to kill Jimmy
1: by Mike Jeffrey. Right. So talk about that and now. A few years ago, you were editing a Hendrix special for Classic Rock magazine, and you asked me to review a book written by James Tappy Wright, who had been one of Hendrix's roadies. And in uh, uh, Mr. Wright's book, he said very clearly that Jimmy had been murdered, uh, not, I believe, by Mike Jeffrey himself, but by his people. Mm. By uh, pouring, I don't know, three bottles of red wine down his throat until mm. he vomited. Mm. I can't remember the exact details, but like maybe choking him while he vomited or just ensuring that he did not survive the vomit. And
2: I think his assertion was because Jeffrey's had him insured for a lot of money. In order
1: to uh, make a lot of money out of the insurance money that he would get from Jimmy not fulfilling his requ- uh, obligations as a touring artist. Right? I
2: think also he reconciled himself, if that's the word, to the mm. fact that Jimmy wasn't going to be doing his bidding anymore. I mean,
1: this is a huge claim to make. Now, Mike Jeffrey was long dead when when this book came out. Mm. James Wright himself has subsequently died, mm. and he was very, very clear in his book. He said, "This is what happened." Mm. I think he cited an eyewitness whose name I can't remember, but he said, "This is what happened." Jimmy was murdered for an insurance claim. Now. What do we do with that information? You know, all these years yeah. later.
2: Well, we do know that just a few months before that, Jimi Hendrix was kidnapped in New York. Tell us about that. Which again, people attribute to Mike Jeffrey, mm. although this kidnapping was allegedly done by members of the mafia, who it is said some say mm. on Mike Jeffrey's bidding. Now, yep. whether it yep. was to scare the bejesus out of Jimi. But shortly after that, he embarks on his experience tour. <laughs> I think he was gone for like three to five days, something like that. Mm. And, of course, you know, the, the media coverage of such things is so minimal in those days compared yeah. to now. Yeah. You can't look out the window these days without it being all over social yes. media. Yeah. Hendrix kidnapped for five days. <laughs> but, yes, it happened. Mm. And, yet mm. freaked the shit out of everybody. This is all proven and known. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't just make it up. What? Stop looking at him. Well, he's going
1: to say something. Here we go. So his stomach was pumped full of red wine, but he hadn't had time to metabolise it, which is why there was none in his bloodstream. According to the surgeon, Dr. Bannister, he said that... uh, Hendricks'
2: body was full of red wine. His stomach was full of red wine. Absolutely overflowing with red wine. But... But the alcohol content in his blood was minimal. Right, so therefore the
1: wine cannot have been in his stomach very long... Right. ...before he died. Right. And he stated that Jimmy must have drowned from this. Right, and and Tappy claims that they shoved gallons of this stuff stuff. down his neck. And it's consistent uh, with, with Tappy's claim. That's what the surgeon thought. So maybe Jimmy was murdered, you know, maybe he was. I think people overlook, or, or simply aren't
2: aware of just how dodgy music biz and showbiz was. Oh
1: man! I in mean, the, the sixties, the list of monstrous managers goes on and on, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, an
2: organised crime, particularly mm. in America, mm. uh, remains a feature, if truth be known. But particularly in those Wild yeah, West yeah, days, yeah, yeah. where. People aren't pulling out credit cards for tickets or Mm. records. They're paying cash. Mm, mm. And these are usually poor people making the records. They're not smart cookies. Hendrix had been running around like the runt of the litter for most of his life. Now he's a big star. It could just disappear tomorrow, Mm, mm, you know. mm. And the way he was spending money and people were spending his money for him. I mean, Hendrix never owned a house. Really? Really. Never owned a house, never owned a, a car. You know, he he would sleep on the floor or someone's spare room or he'd have an apartment briefly in New York with mm, some chick. Mm, mm, mm. Him and Kathy in London, I think, was the closest he ever got to domesticity. <laughs> and even that was, you yeah. know, a
1: young couple uh, having a good time. Going back to the night of his death, Monica discovered him, right? That's how the story goes. Lemmy maintained that she was at fault for not putting Jimmy in the recovery position. right. Which may or may not be relevant. Oh, God, Lemmy would know. Oh, Lemmy was. On uh, an unrelated note, Lemmy the following day was going to go and audition as uh, Hendrickson's bass player. Wow, <laughs> what a fantastic that true? thing! That's what Lemmy said. He yeah, said, but, "Lemmy was such a fibber sometimes." You're right, but he was Did saying. Did Jimmy this, know he was coming? He was saying this in the context <laughs> of a very sad story about Jimmy's death. So I imagine right. it wouldn't be the time right. to throw in a kind of a right. quip. You know what I mean? Right. All right well, what happened, mate? What, what was the cause of, of the, what happened well there's a, lots of stories i okay. mean there, there, yeah. there
2: are stories about the two pilots smoking weed and yeah. sharing a bottle of bourbon okay. what actually happened was the engine that caught fire <laughs> on the previous flight caught fire again mm. and mm. stopped and although they had just refueled mm. they'd literally just refueled and taken off they were suddenly perilously close to being out of fuel. Yeah. So either the thing was leaking fuel, which maybe helped cause the fire, who knows. Yes. But the second engine then died. Christ. And I was reading about this, and this next bit is really chilling, because mm. I hadn't thought it through. I hadn't realised. But uh, the two pilots go into the the rest of the plane, only a small plane, yeah. tell them what's happened, Both engines are dead and at this point we are in free fall. I suggest you get pillows, put your head between your knees and buckle up tight. And it took them over 10 minutes to hit the ground.
1: Good Lord.
2: Ronnie was asleep. They woke him up because he needed to get his seatbelt on. Mm. And he was like, just let me sleep, man. And they're like, but Ronnie, the plane's going down. He gets up walks to the back of the plane, finds himself a pillow. On his way, he grins. He looks at one of the guys. I forget which one it was. Maybe Ed. He looks at one of the guys, grins at him and shakes his hand. And he said, Ronnie knew he was going to die. Jesus. Gets the pillow, back in the seat. And 10 minutes later, 10 of the longest minutes you Mm -hmm. can ever imagine. Mm -hmm. Apparently it was dead quiet other than people pleading to God to spare their lives. Mm A lot of sobbing. God. And Ronnie just sitting there, not a word. And the uh, plane comes down at 90 miles an hour. Skimming some trees? Over yeah, the, which yeah. take off the wings, burst open the fuselage, separate the pilot cabin from the, the, body the, the, the body of the plane. The tail comes off, still move in. By the time it stopped, Ronnie Van Zandt was already dead, Blunt force trauma to the head. He went straight into a tree.
1: At 90 miles an hour?
2: Yeah. And the two pilots, both dead, they were still strapped into their chairs, but the chairs had been ripped out of the plane and oh. were actually hanging upside down from trees. Gosh. It's like um, a
1: hor- horror film, isn't it? I can't think of a worse scenario.
2: The, and of course, the, with all horrors, there's this tiny bit of bleak humour, mm. which is, mm. that the, the, the you know, the, famously their drummer at the time... The fabulously named Artemis Pyle (laughs) was in with the pilots when the second engine went and Mm. they were maydaying. Mm. They were already maydaying, in fact, for somewhere to land. Mm. And the second engine went. And Artemis Pyle's father was a pilot who had died in a plane crash. And he said he could tell just looking at the pilots, he said they had death in their eyes. They'd clearly never ever experienced anything like that before they didn't have any training with what to do mm. one of the guys also on the plane whose name uh, tragically escapes me right this second but apparently he went through to the pilots during the 10 minutes when they're whistling through the air yeah because there was no sound the engines were gone they, all they said they could hear was the their own plane whistling Jeez. through the air oh, he went through and said to them i hope you motherfuckers survive because after this, I'm going to kill you both.
1: Are we right in saying that his, he exploded onto the worldwide scene with Purple Rain. That was when it all...
2: I think that was when he burst onto the scene. Yeah, OK. I think that's when he exploded. Did the film
1: the come at the same time as the album, or was it a bit later, or what was the score? Um,
2: 1984. Now, I remember this very, very well, because mm. I was a champion of that record and that movie. Crusher Jewel, yeah. who was the designer... And legend, rock legend. Well, legend to be. He wasn't in 1984. In 1984, he was still Steve Jewell and he wore these glasses that looked like your grandmother's and Mm. it was me that dragged him out of his shell and started calling him Crusher. He did have that as a nickname, but no one ever used it because, honestly, this was like visiting your auntie when you saw it, mm, Steve or mm, Stephen. Mm, mm. It was later that he then developed this wonderful persona, but it was already there, the craziness. And the Craig office was in Covent Garden. Of course, no social media, no video even. Yeah. So if you wanted to see the movie, you went to the movie theatre and it was showing in Leicester Square and it was on for about a month. And Crusher and I went to see it nine times. Oh, wow three of those times tripping
1: heavily really yeah like falling over things
2: well the third time crusher was evicted from the theater (laughs) because he was literally running around the whole thing he was having a freak out running around going rock
1: rock rock yeah yeah and i'm going cool it man cool it man dude Calm down, know oh, you English? The, p- the pigs I'm making a scene. So literally, these ushers,
2: these like old lady ushers, are running after him with torches. On the Sit screen, down, young on man. the screen, it's you know when doves cry, dim dim dim, dim 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 dim, yeah yeah, and all these torches following. him. finally, they get him, tackle him to the ground. And don't forget, he's tripping
1: on heavy duty. And he's quite tall. He? He's big lad, isn't he? He's quite tall. I've met. Him. Maybe he's grown since those days. <laughs> Come on, continue with the story. Are you story? sure you weren't tripping? When Come you on, mean. so they wrestled you into the ground and that was the end of it. Threw
2: him out. So I'm left there on my own, tripping out of my brain, thinking... Uh, sure, that's not legal. Surely there's some, way out, there uh, some kind
1: of way out of here. There must be some kind
2: of way out of here. Yeah, and there wasn't. I stayed till the end, found my way to the tube somehow. Mm. and uh, But that's another story. The point is, is we became obsessed with the movie and the album and... Uh, it was all simultaneous because when Dubs Cry" was the first single, and that's the video, the video film. of when course Dubs it has Cry, bits of the film in it. It all of the film, isn't it? You know, it, it's like a trailer for the movie. The bit on the bike and all that stuff—that's all in the
1: movie. Can I tell you my favorite scene? Is it the bit where yes. she? Yes. First, you have oh, to sorry. purify yourself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. And she does, first removing her top. Now, I was 13 or something when this Wasn't it came all out. her
2: clothes? I thought it was all her clothes. No, she retains, she
1: retains the bottom dignity. Does she? She retains much dignity. Me and my either. friend Phil, I'll give my friend Phil a big name check here, who introduced me to Prince and was a huge, huge Prince fan. He had it on video. And we would incessantly watch that scene in our feverish little teenage way.
2: She had. She, she was, was a big bone girl. Insanely
1: beautiful, that woman. And, uh, yeah, uh, that was my moment. I yeah. tell you, I, I was very confused and happy about that for many years to come. Well, I ended up having
2: the movie on video and watched it about another hundred times. Mm. And I have to say, Pause button she was in many of my favourite scenes. But yeah. mainly, you know why? Do tell. Good singer. Oh, she's a great singer. Yeah. <sighs> but, that was it, but, that,
1: but that was a great movie, and don't forget, he wrote that. It's unexpectedly a great movie. Surely the odds would be stacked against it. Oh, you know? it should have been. And yeah, it was shit. great. He got an Oscar for it, didn't he? Yeah. As well as the, the associated Grammys and stuff. But that film was so outrageous, so brilliant, so not really that true. I don't think. Yeah, but that, when, when
2: has truth had anything When's to it do with? everything's fair with a good
1: film, right? You see
2: that? Well, the thing is, there's truth, and then there's ultimate truth. Man, that's deep. Well, you can watch The Simpsons and go, well, it's just a cartoon. No, mate, there's a lot of truth going on here. Mm -mm. Why I think that movie was so ultimately brilliant was because, of course, it was ridiculous and over-the-top and hilarious. But that time when you see him on stage, he's got no shirt on, he's got a blindfold. Oh, yeah. And he's singing and doing... That, to me, is truth because that ain't an MTV video. That's actually... Him on stage doing something he would do on stage. He's also, you want to look for deeper levels, he's also referencing Jimi Hendrix's performance at Woodstock, mm. where he had a guitarist on stage, a black guitarist on stage, completely blindfolded, especially if you're tripping. You know, <laughs> you can find a lot of
1: significance in that movie. There's truth in that. I, I like it, man. Truth. And, and there's that whole thing with him and Morris Day. And uh, what was the club called? Fifth Avenue? Fifth Avenue. I always wanted to go there and see the beautiful people who were rather different from rural Somerset, where I was grown up, (laughs) uh, surrounded by pig farmers and their offspring. Um, The album, Purple Rain, uh, which... Cock cheese. Uh, uh, And um, the album starts with Let's Go Crazy, which has that all-time great intro. Dearly beloved... (laughs) Me!
0: We're going
1: to get through this thing called Life, Electric Word. Life means very, my long time. And at the end of that song, he does that insane Eddie Van Halen-style solo. I can't remember that. Go straight into, Are you sure you weren't tripping? Go straight into Darling Nicky, as I recall. Yeah. Another amazing song, which had a very real word in it. About masturbation. It did. It had, I met her in the hotel lobby. Where she was masturbating
2: with a magazine. Yes. Yeah.
1: And uh, apparently that was quite shocking at the time. Enough for... I'd say that was fairly shocking now. Who was that idiot? Imagine if
2: you're watching... Um, not that I would. You'd have to stab me in both eyes if you caught me. But if you're watching The X Factor... So what are you going to do for us, love? I'm going to do Our Darling Nicky yeah. by Prince. Oh, yeah. go for it. The
1: man is Masturbating with the man... Oh, uh, 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 uh,
2: uh, 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 you can't say that. Yeah, right. Because I've never masturbated. Um, where was I going with that? Typical. PMRC took objection. He was one of the Filthy Fifteen. They mentioned that line in court. Mm. I was not shaking... American ab- American yeah. me. Hey,
1: I was uh, reading I this was, with my daughter. I,
2: I was reading the Bible with my daughter and <laughs> she, Bible study class. She showed me a uh, the lyric sheet it from had this the album. M word, and I I couldn't believe my eyes. I'm I shocked. had to seek therapy from I'm my shocked, therapist. Barbara, I'm shocked, i mean, I just had to drop another Quaalude and have a whiskey. <sighs> and, I mean. Yes, I often masturbate with
1: magazines, but I wouldn't put it in a song and play it to my children of God. I wrote a a long piece once about the Parents Music Resource Centre, PMRC, Metal Hammer, years ago. And uh, it was a big piece on censorship in music, so I went back to Elvis and so on and so on. And when I got to the 80s, it was just hilarious, this nonsensical (laughs) satanic panic that had America up in arms, certain parts of America, not the more liberal parts that we know and love. And Prince, of course, you look back now, God, it's all so innocent. Yes, you were... G-string, and yes, he used the word masturbate. Oh, my God. Were we all
2: idiots back then, or what? No, of course not. That's why 9 million people bought that record and why he won an Oscar for the movie. Yeah. People in the PMRC, they were the idiots. And, of course, you know, it's, it's news. Politicians. It's a link Never on TV them. or the news channel, you know. Tip of Gore. Tip of Al Gore. Gore's wife. Yeah. Why they didn't tell her to fuck off, I don't know. Do you know what? people did tell her to fuck off because Mm. none of these careers ended. You know, the irony was, the sweet irony was that as soon as you got one of those stickers on your record, it was like a badge of honour. Yeah. It's like now, these days, I mean, I I sit at home and you're watching TV and you go, "Uh, the following programme contains scenes Mm. of sex and violence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, sex and... I'm like, (laughs) booyah! it? This is my shit! (laughs) This is my people! Excellent! (laughs) I only want programmes have sex and violence From and the
1: outset. Disturbing... <laughs> from the outset. And <laughs> filthy language. From the credit. From the outset. In the credit. <laughs> you want that oh no, shit. You want that shit? shit. This was the era of Mike Reed refusing to play "Relax" by Frankie. I hated all... This. Even when I was 12 years old, I knew this was all bullshit.
0: Dead Rock stars. They did it, so we don't have to.
1: You referred earlier to her status as a feminist rock icon and how that felt a little bit patronising, a little bit odd, and I agree with that because... She hardly lived a life which was an example to us all by dying of a drug overdose at the age of 27. Conversely, she fought that gender identity war and won because she did commercially and critically very, very well. Mm. She sang in an incredibly, I don't want to say aggressive way, but it was, it was full of energy and vim Very forceful Very forceful, very powerful You listened to her, didn't you? And you watched her So she stamped her mark on, as you were saying A really masculine music scene That's got to be an inspiration for today's, you know Women and girls who are are musicians or wanting to be musicians I totally get that and I'm glad she exists in that sense What's gutting is that she couldn't make the ultimate triumph And live a long and productive, happy life I think also it reflects well on rock music Because... (laughs)
2: I don't care if this sounds patronizing, but it occurs to me that unlike Grace Slick, who was beautiful and desirable in the conventional sense, Janice wasn't in the conventional sense, Mm -hmm. but she created a space that hadn't existed before. Right. A pioneer. An absolute pioneer. Okay. It was through her demons, her insecurities. Well, you could say that about Sinatra or Elvis or whatever. Yeah. OK, there are reasons she was like she was. But the fact is, before Janice, there wasn't anybody like her. There yeah. were some big-boned old uh, black Jazzers blues and soul singers. Like. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, soul singers. But in terms of rock and pop and that whole area, she created a space that did not exist before. Mama Cass yeah. was around the same time. Mama Cass loved her, was there at Monterey. Yeah. But Mama Cass was in a group... -hmm. Who wrote California Dreaming? Different music entirely. And they also had a beautiful blonde girl in the group. You know, there was a. It was Offset. Yeah, she did have a solo career. But Janice was so, you know, I, I hate when people use that word iconic because they totally overuse totally it. To, yeah. If you listen to Six Music, all these people you've never heard of, <laughs> all iconic, <laughs> people use it now as a way of saying, well, you've never heard of him and he never sold any fucking records, but completely iconic mm. in the hip-hop community. You Ted know.
1: Rogers was iconic on 321. No, no, he was iconic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Joel's just doing the little... 321. Yeah, that's gesture. easy. Go
2: on, do it again. How do you do it?
1: No, I fucked up. No, I can't do it. Yeah. Not, it doesn't really work for podcasts. Either, no, no, either. but I, you know. So I think Janice... She's dead, Ted Rogers. She, uh, yeah. Could we do him on this? Maybe.
2: So uh, she did this thing that hadn't been done
1: before. She left a door open. But who did walk through it? Well, that happened? was my next question. Okay, in the 80s, the biggest pop artist in the world was Madonna, right? But now, that's better, a long better, better, way away. About as opposite to Janice as you could possibly get, except,
2: musically, maybe, musically. except maybe in Attitude. Right, her forceful character. Beating
1: the guys at yeah, their own yeah, game. Yeah, totally. And then beyond that, into the 90s, you had... Well, the obvious clichéd suggestion is Alanis Morissette, but that there or, were a lot of very, very strong or, women in the Courtney 90s. Or Courtney Love. Yeah, OK. Yeah, yeah. So from, you know, in the 80s and 90s on, you had these very, very Amy strong Amy
2: Winehouse women. in
1: more recent times. So, but in the 70s, in the wake of her death, I can't think of a woman rocker, particularly, unless I'm missing that completely. Susie Quattro. Susie Quattro. She is a good example. Yeah, and also Susie Sue from the band. Yeah, Shoes. what did you say? Sue. Ah, sorry, I was thinking of Susie... I um, thought it said Susie Q. So that's what I, it said, said I thought you he said here. as well, yeah. This I, is why I producers shouldn't fucking talk. Interrupt when we <laughs> when the talent... Is creating now? Susie Quattro came up
2: in the early seventies, right? But uh... well, she wasn't Janice. She was uh, an Osmond's version of the Janice.
1: Yeah, topic. in a kind of with a sort of rock facade, I guess. Right? Even yeah, she, she pop music. Yeah, Maybe yeah. people made
2: a big deal about oh, it's this girl in black leather. You know? know? Yeah, doing fucking pop hits written by the same people that write songs for Smokey and Chin Mud and Chairman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 great pop songs, by the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. But give me a break. All right. So, who followed in her footsteps? Then has anyone ever really done it? There are quite a few. Female singers oh, nowadays who sing in an extremely extravagant way.
2: Oh, oh I think there are extraordinary female uh, musical personalities yeah. now. Yeah. There are ladies that have inverted the triangle, as you might say. They've belied the conventional idea it's of. the what paradigm? It, that's where I'm aiming for. Just ask me. If Al- Alison, problems. Moyet, Alison Moyet problems? Alison Moyet. Yeah, all right, yeah. yeah, because yeah. she was a, a big pop icon mm. when she exploded onto the sea. <laughs> But, you know, she was not Britney Spears, you know. It's true. Um, it's true. And there are lots of other examples, um, I think particularly over the last sort of 10 or 20 years. Courtney Love, definitely in that space, although Courtney played on her sexuality a mm-hmm. little more obviously. The Riot Grrrl bands,
1: they yeah, were, they yeah, were full go. of energy and aggression. There you go. And they dominated L7 space. was
2: great. Yeah. Also, in the early 70s, there was a group called Fanny. Yeah who were June and Jean Millington, the sisters, who I really fancied the arse off, Jean. Mm. Um, If you're listening, Jean, get She was a bass player, actually. Of course, they're always the hottest. Yeah,
1: of course they are. I suppose what I'm leaning towards, in the absence of us coming up with... Yeah, what are you leaning towards? In the absence of us coming up with loads of candidates who who followed in Janice's footsteps, is that maybe she was just way ahead of the curve by like a decade or two. There wasn't really a, a successor to her who looked or sounded like her for quite some time.
2: No, there wasn't.
1: So she was alone in that sense. I don't know who it was. Someone said that the pioneers get all the arrows, and she did. The term creative capital was uh, introduced to me a few years ago by a member of the industry who said that bands, in fact, anyone, Who's a creative is uh, blessed or born with a certain amount of creative capital, right? It's so what bands run out of. They all do. We all do. Everyone does. At no, some I do No, maybe not you, but Never everyone me. else. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're Possibly, the, you're you. the Bowie. Seen, now I yeah. see you
2: very Bolan-esque in that
1: regard. I, I am quite like Mark Bolan in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll list, I've often said to myself, I've often gone, Mark. I
2: mean, Joel. Joel. <laughs> <laughs> Especially now
1: you've lost a lot of weight. Oh, yeah, I'm barely visible. If I stand sideways, you wouldn't see me. No. That's what my wife says. That's fine. Creative Mm -hmm. capital is what deserts us, and we, uh, they, as musicians, start writing shit music. I think
2: musicians, definitely. I think writers get
1: more powerful, often. I like
2: that. Yeah, musicians, they're fucked after 25. But writers don't even
1: get going till they're at least... (laughs) 31. 50. So... The point I'm trying to make is that he did, in fact, have an incredibly transcendent period, right? He knocked out all these killer singles one absolutely, by one. Absolutely, absolutely. And then nothing really after that, and that was it. The drugs got him, the weight got him, the car got him. In fairness to him, if
2: I was an artist...
1: If I was a carpenter...
2: <laughs> and I'd written one of his songs... Telegram, Sam. For me, Children of the Revolution. But you see, we can just... There's loads there's of them. I mean, let's just go right now. Ride a White Swan, Hot Love...
1: yeah. Jeepster.
2: Jeepster. Telegram Get- Sam. Telegram Sam. Metal Guru. Metal Guru. Get it on. Yeah. Twentieth uh, Century Boy. Twentieth Century Boy. Solid uh, Gold
1: Easy Action. Yep. Yeah. And many
2: others. Well that's that's do, do, eight. Do, 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 Children do, do. of the Revolution. Did we mention that? Phil Collins ripped off those drums for in the a tonight, you know. Did he? I'm saying he did. <laughs> no, go. Cause they were good they were really oh, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, synthetic yeah. sounding, but fantastic. Gated, maybe, yeah,
1: yeah, whatever yeah, that yeah, is. Well, yeah. It's when you—it's actually no, don't, <laughs> you, no, don't fucking. <laughs> it's when you get rid of the reverb, so it goes and then stops. It's a very eighties sound, whereas opposed to letting the, the drum ring out and go, you get rid of all the the tail of it. Can you, f- can you see the tumbleweed no. going through the studio? So he was born Mark Feld yep. in 1947. Nice Jewish boy. Nice Jewish lad. He was in a band, I've just found out, at school with Helen Shapiro. Did you know that? I didn't know that. The shrieking Walking female singer. Walking back to happiness. Right, her. Oompa. Except you've got to say oh, it in a yeah. really full throated way. <laughs> you know, she was the, you know, the death metal singer of her generation. She Helen Shapiro? Hell of a pair of lungs on her. No, she was a belter, wasn't she? She probably gave it loads in her later career, not at this point. I think Mark was very, little, I mean, if you Mark think
2: failed. of Mark, the <clears throat> umpa, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a whole T-Rex right there,
1: isn't it? <laughs> yes, there is. umpa well, oh, is it yeah, t-rex? yeah. A T-Rex <laughs> <laughs> Um He was in a band with Helen Shapiro at school. Am I right in saying that one of his first bands was John's Children, right, which was a sort of... Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, wait, hang on. He was uh, considered for inclusion in The Yardbirds, i read somewhere. I didn't know that either until I read it in preparation Well, listen, if you, it, it, I'm sure Wikipedia is never wrong. But instead they whacked him into John's children because it was Simon Bell, the, the, oh, the manager who the, looked uh, after all that lot. Yeah. manager. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Mix just made a certain gesture. So, yes, uh, yes he defiance. was the Svengali who the uh, personal, picked up... personal pop
2: impresario. That's right, yeah, yeah. As yeah. they called them in the 60s.
1: And uh, I can't quite imagine Bolin in The Yardbirds the but there you have it. Maybe he would have been Robert Plant in Led Zeppelin. Who knows later on? that's a very, step too far? i very fucking top, much glitter top on his
2: face. But, uh, like that's it, yeah,
1: yeah. There's an amusing impression <laughs> of Bolin by none other than David Bowie. Recorded oh, yeah. in the studio ah, in the 80s. Larry the Lamb. You know, Absolute Beginners, the Bowie song. Yeah. yeah. There's a version that, that you can hear it on YouTube. Uh, when he was recording the vocals for that song in the studio, he was pissing around and doing various amusing impressions of people. He, he did Iggy. He did Bolan. He, <laughs> he does want a Bolan. It's yeah. quite, it's quite, it's, ah. it's m- not actually that affectionate. It's quite, quite brutal, you know, yeah. it does rip into him. But, yeah. but there one has it. Okay, cool. Am I right in saying that he pretty much did, for the years of the 70s, he just did Vegas, right? That was pretty much what he did. Or did he do other no, stuff? He did, no, he did do tours. He did Madison Square and things like that. But they uh, became
2: less and less, as he became less and less able. Mm. He used to call it his TCB tours. He used, Take, Take t- care of business. I ain't really much, man. There you go, yeah. They would leave for like six weeks at a time, yeah. come back, stockpile loads of drugs, go back out for six weeks. But on the road in Vegas or at home at the mansion same guys mm. the Memphis Mafia they called yeah them. right Red West Sunny
1: West all these guys that he'd grown up like. with that were just like a circle of yes men mm, until they broke away and they wrote that story didn't they called Elvis what happened
2: yeah yeah. well I mean in the end everybody was made money out of Elvis mm. everybody
1: I wonder if Elvis most important role looking back is as a precedent of where not to fuck up and how not to, you know, get some demon to look after your career and give him that much uh, Well, it,
2: it can be seen that way, but it, it doesn't seem to work, does it? Or we wouldn't have a podcast, <laughs> you know. Jim, As I say, Jim Morrison's two huge influences were Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra. Mm. Robert Plant, Elvis Presley. John Lennon, Elvis Presley. Um, no one fell from as great a height as Elvis. No, that's true. But then no one has ever flown as high as he did. It's just extraordinary yeah. to think what might have been if the colonel hadn't come along and just completely ruined the whole thing, poisoned
1: the well. Was he writing his own songs, Elvis? No. So creative capital is not an issue here because he didn't have any. He was a great singer, that's what he did. He sang songs. Well, he was songs. a great singer. An interpreter of other people's tweets. And, and
2: what they used to do was, if you had a song mm. for Elvis, the idea was, okay, well, you, you have to say it's by you and Elvis, <laughs> and Elvis will get 50% yeah, of that. That happens to this day. Uh, of course it does Mm. but I mean uh, you know David Bowie famously wrote Golden Years Golden Years Golden
1: Years (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh did he know? written for Elvis I have a funny story and Elvis rejected it I've told you this story before but I'm just going to say it no please do yes does this have anything to do with uh, Glenn no it's not it's the other guy I did but with Woody Woodman's I wrote Woody's book a couple of years ago. He can told we just me remind people who Woody story. is? Oh, yeah, we we can do that. Woody Woodmansey is the last man standing of The Spiders from Mars, right. which was uh, Bowie's backup band on various albums, including Ziggy Stardust. Uh, as opposed to Woody from the Bay City Rollers. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. to get that clear. No, you're quite right. Clear. No, no, that's important. Or Woody in the Faces. Uh, indeed. And, uh, or Woody Guthrie. Uh, in the middle of the recording of one of the albums, I've forgotten which one it was. It was either Ziggy Stardust or possibly allowed Insane. Bowie fucked off to New York to see Elvis play. So this would have been 71 or 72. I can't remember which one it was. Right, yeah, yeah. And um, the great thing about this is that by then, Elvis was playing to a load of suits. So the audience was not full of dramatic-looking people. Right, so right. what did Bowie wear to go and see a Elvis? dress. No, the full Ziggy. All right. The full red <laughs> mullet, the full gear, probably 10-inch platforms, massive shoulders covered in sparkle dust. Huge and he, balls And this is out. the sweet bit. He arrived late to the show, but his seat was at the front. So Elvis was already on stage giving it, wow, you. and Ziggy had to walk all the way past all these fuckers and sit down and take his seat, pretty much where the spotlights were, and he was incredibly embarrassed. He wasn't loving it and going, hey, I'm David. Right. He was incredibly embarrassed. I love that story. A
2: bit you always neglect to mention, though, is where Elvis says to him from the stage, oh, hurry up, take your seat, ma'am.
1: Uh, take your seat, ma'am? You look just like a diamond dog or no, something.
2: No, ma'am.
1: Oh, ma'am, yeah. I'm sorry. Trigger sheet. seat, nice. Uh, was, uh, we used to call the haircut a mullet or something. So, uh, where were we up to? No, you're not, still not getting it. I'm saying Elvis thought he was a girl. No, no, I, I did go after
2: that. You didn't say No, I know.
1: I totally had a No, I got know, it. I did get it. No, you, you, a
2: girl. He thought it was a girl. It a great joke. You didn't kind of allow it to breathe, it's though, blossom, did you? No, you, you shat on it. <laughs> you shat on my flower.
1: poor so Elvis. He spends the 70s getting iller and iller, sicker and sicker, fatter and fatter. And the one thing you cannot higher do... Higher and higher. The one thing you cannot do in rock music is get fat. You just can't.